2: Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two part case. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Kiln Lane is a narrow road flanked by woodland crossing the River Itchen and winding southeast from the village of Otterbourne to the quiet hamlet of Brambridge in the southeast of England. Although isolated, measuring roughly a mile, the road is used as a commuter route, so a considerable amount of traffic passes through it during peak travel times. Shortly before 6 pm on Friday, January 11th, 2008, Police were alerted to an address on the thoroughfare close to the riverbank. A woman in her late 70s had been found dead in her kitchen with injuries that suggested she had been severely assaulted. The victim was identified as 77-year-old widow Georgina Elizabeth Edmonds. She was discovered by her son and two groundskeepers. They became suspicious when they could not see any movement in the property and Georgina was not answering her phone. Once they accessed the home and switched on the lights, they found her in a pool of blood. While there appeared to be no sign of a break-in as the doors and all but one of the windows were locked, it was not unusual for her to leave the home unsecured during the daylight hours. The widow of nearly 20 years lived there alone with her spaniels, Amber and Daisy. The following day, a post-mortem was undertaken. It revealed that Georgina Edmonds had died from substantial head injuries. A murder investigation was launched, Operation Columbian, and police held a press conference outside the scene of the crime. Paul Barton, a detective chief inspector with the Hampshire Constabulary, appealed to the public, specifically dog walkers, ramblers and joggers, asking that they report anything out of the ordinary. While DCI Barton did not go into detail about Georgina Edmonds' injuries, he said, It's fair to say a blunt instrument was used, but as yet we don't know what this is. As scenes of crime officers continued to search for clues while the press conference continued, the detective chief inspector went on to explain that the investigation would be relying on sightings made by the local community. The property Georgina Edmonds called home sat amongst secluded grounds and she was a neighbour to only a handful of other residents their homes partially hidden from view amongst the dense trees and bushes. There was a fear that a resident who had been staying at a nearby rehabilitation centre might have been involved. Elderfield House in Otterbourne, a hostel where male ex-offenders with a low to medium risk of reoffending undergo rehabilitation, had been home to Anthony Rice a serial sex offender who had served 16 years for rape and sexual assault before being released in 2004. He went on to kill 40-year-old Naomi Bryant less than a year later and was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison. While locals were concerned that someone from Elderfield House might have been responsible for the death of Georgina Edmonds, Police stressed that there was no indication that anyone staying at the hostel was involved. At the time, a murder weapon had not been disclosed and police could find no motive for the attack. They urged locals to remain vigilant and secure their homes. Residents were interviewed by the press with one man who did not wish to be named, stating, It's a shock to everybody here. It's a tragedy and our hearts are with her family.
3: Absolutely shocked. Couldn't believe it ever happened. And I still can't believe it happened. I still think about her, and I've passed the house many times and still think about the dear soul her lovely
0: smile. Huge shock that something like that happened in the heart of a community where crime was milk bottles over the hedge on a Friday night or something like
2: that. Known affectionately as the Lady of the Manor, Georgina Edmonds was described by a family friend as a beautiful lady, bubbly and full of fun. Her home fig tree cottage was set in the grounds of a larger estate, Kingfisher Lodge, which belonged to her son Harry in his early fifties. Georgina had moved out of the larger house on the estate as she wanted something smaller that met her needs. Her husband, also called Harry, who had since passed away, built up a family-run tea and coffee merchants that was now being managed by their son. Georgina was a well-liked member of the community, of which she had been a part of for 30 years. It was believed that she had been attacked sometime between 11.15am to 3.15pm. That morning, she had received a visit from her hairdresser, and then eaten lunch. Susan Parrick, who had known Georgina for 30 years, had frequently called in on her friend after the 77-year-old found it difficult to leave the house following a hip operation. Georgina was someone who took pride in the way she looked and was active, despite not being able to go out much due to an onset of osteoporosis. Susan Parrick arrived at 10am on that fateful day, to cut Georgina's hair. The pair discussed their grandchildren and how they had spent Christmas. Susan left around 11am. The hairdresser told the press how she felt numb when she discovered the news of Georgina's death and was sick knowing that someone had done this to another human being. A family friend who wished to remain anonymous told a local reporter, I'm extremely fraught and sorry. It's a terrible thing. Harry will be very, very upset. He was very close to his mum. They got on well. Over 50 officers were involved in a fingertip search of the crime scene as police carried out door-to-door inquiries. It was understood that one line of inquiry was that Fig Tree Cottage had been targeted by thieves as her Radley handbag in which she kept her bank card and a set of keys appeared to be missing. By Monday, January 14th, it was reported that a raid had been carried out at Elderfield House Hostel and four residents had been arrested aged 21, 28, 36 and 37. While few details about their involvement in the crime were made public, Questions regarding the hostel's ability to remain open were raised.
4: As police teams paced the grounds of Elderfield House, locals were once again pointing angrily at this country home for former prisoners with renewed suspicion. You know, there's a lot of old people that are very, very scared all the time um, and this is obviously just
0: a great shock.
3: It used to be a good thing, helping prisoners back in
2: society but now it just seems like it's a complete... You know, nightmare.
3: They've never been tagged, and there's never been a curfew on any of them. They just come and go as they please. It was only months ago that they actually put CCTV in there, so no one knew. I mean, my place is right opposite. I've got a house just up the road, and we've seen them jumping in and out of the windows when the doors are unlocked. So they just go where they want to go.
2: Mark Oton, who had been an MP for Winchester for over a decade gave a statement which was reported in the Guardian newspaper. If these arrests were to lead to charges against individuals at Elderfield House, then with regret I think I would find it hard to continue to support the hostel remaining in my constituency. I don't wish to make a knee-jerk reaction, but as the local representative for the community, I have to put safety first. I will therefore be seeking urgent discussions about its failure, When we have more clarity about the individuals concerned. While a spokesman from the Ministry of Justice would not specifically address the case, they defended the use of hostels as a way to reintegrate ex offenders into society. All offenders are subject to a thorough risk assessment before they are placed into approved premises or hostels, he said. Offenders subject to statutory supervision who live in hostels have to have an offender manager who must assess and manage risk and liaise with hostel staff about day-to-day supervision. As police continued their investigation, it was discovered that an attempt had been made to use Georgina Edmonds' Lloyds TSB bank card at an ATM just over two and a half miles away outside a Tesco SO Express in a garage service station on Twyford Road in Eastley. The card was blocked after several incorrect attempts at guessing the personal identification number. The individual believed to be male was captured on CCTV at 10:38 p.m. on Friday, January 11th. The same evening Georgina Edmonds' body was found wearing a yellow fluorescent hooded anorak. Dark gloves, light coloured jeans, and scruffy white trainers, the male was pictured walking east on Albert Road. The hood on the anorak made identification difficult, though, as Albert Road was lined with houses, police were hopeful someone may have spotted the male in his distinctive clothing. In another police appeal, Detective Chief Inspector Paul Barton said, We would urge local criminals who may have been offered her card to come forward and contact the police. His statement came after three of the four residents at Elderfield House were released without charge, another remained on bail. Officers were searching the drains and bins around the Tesco Express garage in the hope the culprit discarded the bank card and left some forensic clues behind. As the investigation neared the end of its first week, the police issued a further appeal asking local residents of Brambridge and Otterbourne to check bins, gardens or adjoining pathways for any items that looked out of the ordinary. DCI Barton stated, We are still actively seeking the person or people responsible for Mrs. Edmund's murder and we are still appealing for anyone with any information about this incident to come forward. With 150 officers now working the case, there were several lines of inquiry the police were considering. These included the possibilities that a cold caller barged their way in, or a burglar was disturbed, leading to an incredibly tragic outcome. In spite of the considerable resources employed by the investigation and numerous public appeals, no further information was gathered. And the police still made no mention of the murder weapon. A further post mortem had also taken place, though, did not reveal any additional evidence. Villagers were concerned that perhaps someone from Elderfield House had been involved, as one man still remained on bail. The gathering was held just under two weeks after the murder, which 200 locals attended. Discussing the incident in front of a packed village hall, director of the Langley House Trust charity who funds Elderfield House explained that the hostel had been open since 1959 and currently housed 17 residents that were transitioning back into society. We understand that following Anthony Rice, when a resident murdered Naomi Bryant in 2005, there was a crisis of confidence in us, he said. The director went on to explain that the charity would be unable to support the hostel if it was discovered that one of the residents committed the murder of Georgina Edmonds. Barry Crook, head of the probation service in Hampshire, also spoke at the gathering and explained that some residents had since been moved out of Elderfield House, though would not divulge how many. He said, I took the decision that some might be at risk of reoffending." because of the pressure and focus. So we have moved some, so the risk does not arise. They have moved where there is a greater level of supervision. As the month of January came to an end, there was a development in the case. During the late evening of Friday, January 25th, 2008, Police raided a semi-detached property on Twyford Road close to the ATM where an attempt was made to use Georgina Edmonds' bank card. Scenes of crime officers searched the home top to bottom and also carried out a fingertip search in the garden, bins and alleyways that adjoined a neighbouring property. The man police sought was not at home and while detectives would not disclose his name, They believed he had since fled overseas back to his native Poland. The male had only been in the UK a few months and was sharing the temporary accommodation with three other men. While items taken from the property were analysed by police and airports were notified of the man's disappearance, no arrests were made. As the weeks passed and both residents of Elderfield House and the men who had been questioned after the late-night raid were eliminated from the inquiry, the officers in Operation Columbian turned their focus to identifying the man who had attempted to use Georgina Edmonds' bank card. During the second week of February, police released enhanced CCTV images of the male as he failed to withdraw money from the account. While his face was obscured, police appealed to the drivers who could be seen passing the ATM. Detective Chief Inspector Barton leading the inquiry informed the press that after consultation with experts, it was believed the male in question was around 5 feet 11 inches tall and of slim to medium build. Police also considered it possible the way in which he approached the cashpoint suggested he was familiar with the garage forecourt and had used it before. An offender profile was created which stated that the man was either a local or knew someone that lived nearby. Officers working the case appealed to the public to ask themselves why would someone involved in the murder run the risk of withdrawing cash so close to the crime scene on the evening of the murder? Perhaps you own a high visibility jacket that had recently been stolen. Had you been offered a cheap Radley handbag and has anyone you know left the area since the attack? As the investigation continued, another vital clue was discovered. Georgina Edmonds' mobile phone was found in a thicket on a towpath next to the River Itchin. The battery and SIM card had been removed. The Nokia device found close to the victim's home was tested for DNA. Detectives postulated that they might now know the route in which the assailant made his escape. The search team continued in its efforts, hoping the undergrowth might yield further evidence. DCI Barton said, We are determined to catch the person responsible for the murder of Mrs. Edmonds, with a view towards bringing some peace to the family and community within which she lived. The investigation expanded and into its fifth week, Hampshire Constabulary called in their colleagues from Surrey to review the case. DCI Barton confirmed Surrey Police's involvement, stating, They will be reviewing all the policies that have been made and identifying any lines of inquiry that we may have missed. We welcome their engagement. As further details of the crime became known, it was revealed that Georgina Edmonds had been tortured before her death. The 77-year-old had been stabbed several times in the top of her body with a weapon police described as a paring knife with a three-inch blade or something that was a similar size and weight. While the murder weapon had still not been disclosed, it was believed that she had been hurt to obtain the personal identification number for her bank card. It was possible that the suspect had either been given the incorrect pin by Georgina or he noted it down incorrectly. Detectives could not be sure. While they did not want to cause panic, the only thing that police seemed almost certain of was the culprit would strike again.
3: When this community first learned of Georgina Edmonds' murder, it was shocked and stunned by what had happened. Now it's having to come to terms with the news that she was first tortured by her attacker using a knife as they tried to extract a pin number from georgina for her cash card well this is horrific as i say the the head injuries were horrific enough but we feel now that the time has now come to let the community know exactly what ordeal mrs evans went through before she was killed and i'm hoping that somebody out there will know some information. In particular, I feel that the person responsible may have confessed this to one of their friends or a relative and now I think they may have played down what their involvement was. But knowing this information, I'm urging those people to do the right thing and contact the police.
2: After releasing the more horrifying details of Georgina's attack, in the investigation's 10th week, police had received around a dozen calls in the incident room but had yet to identify the killer. In an effort to entice someone to speak up, Georgina Edmonds' son Harry offered £3,000 for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible. The reward was quickly increased when Hampshire police offered a further £2,000 and Crime Stoppers added another £1,000, bringing the total to £6,000. But in spite of the reward, no one spoke up. The reward for information leading to a conviction was again increased to £20,000, with funds offered by Doddy Edmonds, Georgina's daughter. On the six-month anniversary of Georgina Edmonds' death, the nurse, who at the time was working overseas, spoke with the Southern Daily Echo. Doddy Edmonds said, I'm offering this reward in the hope that it will encourage someone to come forward with information that will lead to the arrest and prosecution of the person or people responsible for my mother's death. I'm still shocked by what has happened. Doddy Edmonds went on to say, Everyone has a mother or a grandmother, and I expect they can imagine how we as a family feel. If anybody has any information about who may be responsible, no matter how small, Please contact the police. Despite the passing of time and no solid lines of inquiry, officers working the case still remain determined to catch Georgina Edmonds' killer. On Kiln Lane and at the Tesco Express garage nearby, they stopped and questioned dog walkers, joggers, motorists and visitors to the area who were passing through. An eight-page leaflet handed out to everyone police met pictured the man in the fluorescent anorak. Detectives also visited public houses in the surrounding villages, distributing pictures of the man captured on CCTV, attempting to use the bank card, along with four customers who were shopping at the Tesco Express garage that police still had not been able to trace. But again... Despite investigating the thousands of leads that came their way, Hampshire police could still not track down Georgina's killer. The reward for information leading to a conviction was increased to £25,000 and rather than just focus on the villages and towns surrounding the crime scene, police decided to widen the appeal on national television.
3: OK, it's now 10 months since the murder of Georgina Edmonds and we're back at Fig Tree Cottage uh, where we're now doing a reconstruction for a national television appeal to hope that uh, anyone out there that's not aware of this uh, brutal murder can come forward and give some information. Mrs Edmonds was a grandma, a mother, a friend and a relative to a number of people. What I'd ask the killer to do is, is consider that. That could have been your grandma. Do the right thing and give yourself up. Or
2: if you know who- a reconstruction was broadcast on Crime Watch in November 2008. With further information about the case being revealed, it was reported that after Georgina Edmonds was stabbed repeatedly in the neck, chest and back to obtain the four-digit code for her bank card, she was then struck several times in the head with a marble rolling pin. The kitchen utensil that had two wooden handles was subsequently broken into three pieces, two of which were covered in blood. As Georgina lay bleeding in the kitchen, her attacker fled, stealing her handbag, which had a mobile phone inside. The brutal murder saw the culprit leave £30 on the side of the kitchen top. On his way out, the killer locked his victim inside the property and then discarded her mobile phone on a towpath as he made his escape. Ian Wrightson, a groundskeeper who used to walk Georgina's dogs... Was interviewed for the BBC television programme. He said, How someone can actually do that to someone that old, that frail, that kind and gentle. I mean, you could have pushed her over with a feather. At the end of the day, she didn't deserve to die like that. DCI Barton suggested that due to the weapons used, The violence was not planned. We believe she was probably tortured, as we know those injuries did not kill her. They were, however, wounds that would have caused her significant pain, he said. The remote location of Fig Tree Cottage is not just somewhere you can stumble across. He went on to say, The family of Mrs Edmonds, including her two grandchildren, are facing nearly 11 months with questions unanswered. Christmas is coming and it's important for their sake and for the wider community that this person or people responsible are caught. Fifty calls were received in the incident room and two names were provided to police. Amongst the calls made, a local man who did not wish to be named donated a further £5,000 to be added to the reward offered for information that led to a conviction.
1: and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
2: This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centre. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Scent Air comes in. With over three decades of experience, Scent Air leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Scent Air is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate free, cruelty free, safe for families, and EcoVadis certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. One month would pass, and it was now almost a year since the murder of Georgina Edmonds, or Mrs E, as her friends affectionately called her. Her daughter, Doddy Edmonds, and groundskeeper Ian Wrightson spoke about what had happened.
4: I tend to, I think I have switched off now about the way in which she died because it was so terrible. And, uh, and I just know she wouldn't want me to be dwelling on that. You know? But all that, you know, to start with I could sort of... I could imagine a terror and all that sort of thing, but I don't, I don't even let it in now. It's gone. It's passed. Lovely money.
3: I find it very odd that uh, in a beautiful spot like this in the, in the countryside that such an evil act could be committed really. Obviously I've known Mrs. E for over 10 years and uh, saw her most days. I've, taken her to hospital. I've taken her to surgeons in London. I've done errands for her. You know, she's a very sweet lady. She was like a second mum in a way. So it hits me and the family quite hard. And I feel very, very sad for the family anyway. But she didn't deserve to die like that. She was a beautiful lady, very kind, very gracious, very funny. And uh, as I say, I have a special spot in my heart for her and always will.
2: Ian Wrightson had since moved away. While he had hoped he would spend the rest of his days at Brambridge, the emotional toll Georgina Edmonds' murder took on him was too much. Throughout 2009, Fresh calls were received in the incident room. Multiple names had been provided to police, over 3,000 exhibits were gathered, 1,500 statements taken, and the Edmonds family and police made numerous public appeals. A video uploaded to YouTube by the Hampshire Constabulary marked 18 months since Georgina's murder and featured an interview between DCI Barton and Jenny Makin a journalist who had been reporting on the case.
4: It was a shocking murder. What can you tell us about the scene that greeted officers that day?
3: Yes, well, about half past five on Friday the 11th of January 2008, Mrs Edmund's son Harry returned home from work. Uh, He noticed the cottage was in darkness, so he checked on his mother and unfortunately found her lying on the kitchen floor with serious head injuries and stab wounds, and obviously the police were called.
4: And what can you tell us about the state of the house?
3: We're not sure whether it was a burglary went wrong. We certainly know that handbag and contents were taken, but there was no sign of forced entry, which was quite unusual. Um, So was it somebody that Mrs Edmonds invited in? Uh, Was it somebody who who let themselves in because the house was insecure and Mrs Edmonds disturbed them? We we are just not sure at the moment. We're keeping an open mind as to the motive.
4: And what clues do you have about who might be responsible
3: I've been really encouraged by the support that we've had from the community so far in relation to this investigation. There's still a number of people, though, that we're trying to identify that were seen in and around the area on the day of the murder of Georgina Edmonds. I'm particularly keen to identify a person that's seen at 1 o'clock hanging around by the bridge by the entrance to Fig Tree Cottage, and that's a gentleman aged 30 to 40 years wearing a fluorescent jacket with a hood up. Who is he? If you know who he is, then give us a call. Later on in the afternoon, around about 3 o'clock, there's also a person seen hanging around by the towpath They appear to be crouching down. Were they going through Mrs Edmonds' handbag, perhaps trying to decide what to take from the the contents of that handbag? Really keen to identify that person. And probably most importantly, it's around about 20 to 11 on the evening, there's a person attempting to use Mrs Edmonds' cashpoint card at the ATM machine at the Tesco Express in Twyford Road, Eastleigh. You'll see from the footage that this person is wearing a a, a very large fluorescent jacket. Now, is that the same person that was seen at 1 o'clock earlier on in the afternoon, or is it a different person? This person would certainly seem to know the area as they're trying to hide their identity.
2: The video went on to detail the items taken from the home, which included Georgina's black Radley handbag, the house keys, a multi-coloured key fob, a chequebook, bank card and a silver credit card holder. In spite of the video appeal, All lines of inquiry were heading nowhere, and the case continued to remain unsolved. It wouldn't be until almost two years to the day of Georgina Edmonds' murder, police finally had a breakthrough.
3: Well, We're now two years on uh, in relation to this investigation and we're very excited by a major breakthrough in relation to the forensic evidence that we've taken from the crime scene. We now have a DNA profile of the killer. Uh, what we're now doing is identifying a specific area where we're now going to speak to residents and take mouth from people that have an association with that area so that we can compare that with the DNA evidence that we've got from the crime scene. We think this is really significant. Uh, we've spoken to the National Police Improvement Agency who have offender profilers that have been assisting us with this investigation. And what we're now saying is that we firmly believe that the person using the ATM machine on the night of the murder is the killer. Now, that person must have some links with this area. Uh, we've looked at CCTV images, we're confident that person arrived at the ATM machine on foot. Uh, which would suggest that that person is either living in this area or certainly knows this area very well. Now, is that through work? Is that through association? Or, to say, were they living here on the 11th of January 2008? And more importantly, are they still living in this area?
2: Well, I would firstly ask is people to study- While DNA testing was being carried out on 500 local men, police began to focus the investigation on Boyd Wood in Eastleigh, three miles southwest of the scene of the crime and a short distance from the Tesco Express garage, where the ATM card was used. Officers leafleted the 3,000-plus homes in the residential area, which led to over 30 calls to the incident room. Men from Eastleigh could also voluntarily submit their DNA, and most locals did not seem to mind being asked. Stephen Collins, who was often spotted wearing a fluorescent coat, stated, The police came to see me because I wear a yellow jacket when I ride my moped. I received a letter asking me to come and provide my DNA and am more than happy to take part. I just hope it helps them find whoever did this. It was a particularly nasty crime. While the DNA testing continued, in June... Police divers were also searching the River Itchin, scouring the riverbed and towpath following on from a tip-off they received. An item of significance was discovered and sent for testing, though police would not reveal what they had found. Scene of crime officers had completed a general search of the riverbank shortly after the murder occurred, but now the operation targeted a specific section of the river. In the early hours of Wednesday, June 30th, 2010, police made an arrest. A 31-year-old male from Bishopstoke in Eastleigh, just a few miles from the crime scene, had been taken into custody. A property the man shared with his mother on Hamilton Road, along with a flat on the Crescent where he was living at the time of the murder, were examined by a team of forensic experts. The suspect was later identified as Matthew Hamlin, who worked outside of Eastleigh, but had lived in the area for most of his life. At the time of the arrest, police would not comment on whether his DNA matched that of the samples taken. He was released on bail until the start of the following year. January 2011, it was reported that a further item of significance had been found in some woodland at Oakwood Copse in Otterbourne. The police would again not confirm what the item was, however it was believed to either be Georgina's handbag, a multicoloured key fob or silver bank card holder. It had been found by a member of the public and was being tested for DNA and fingerprints. Three years and one month after Georgina Edmonds' death, someone was finally charged with her murder. Matthew Hamlin made his first court appearance dressed in jeans and a black top. Confirming only his name, address and age during the short hearing at Southampton Magistrates Court, he was remanded in custody ahead of a preliminary hearing at Winchester Crown Court. He did not enter a plea, and Judge Keith Cutler, the recorder of Winchester, ordered that Hamlin remain in custody until his next court appearance. In May, at his plea hearing, Matthew Richard John Hamlin pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. His request for bail was denied and he would be kept in custody until the trial, scheduled for November 2011. Jury selection began during the third week of November.
3: The 77-year-old widow and grandmother was discovered lying face down in a pool of blood. She'd suffered 37 injuries. The prosecution say that most of the injuries were inflicted with a knife and that she was also hit over the head with a marble rolling pin.
2: Opening legal proceedings on November 15th, prosecutor Michael Bowes QC told Winchester Crown Court of the horrific scene that greeted Harry Edmonds when he climbed through a window of his mother's home at Fig Tree Cottage. He was searching for Georgina along with two groundskeepers, Bob Whale and Ian Wrightson. The emergency services were alerted and arrived at the scene around 6.20pm. After trying to use a defibrillator, a paramedic noted that Georgina's trousers and underwear had been interfered with, though it would be confirmed later by a pathologist that there were no signs of sexual assault. Describing the crime as a brutal murder, Bose said the many knife wounds penetrated Georgina Edmund's skin. The pattern suggested they had been delivered with some determination. The inference is that she was tortured in order to obtain her PIN number, and then beaten to death. Bose told jurors of the circumstances in which Georgina Edmonds was found, along with further details which had so far been withheld from the public. He warned the jury that some details of the case would be distressing. Home office pathologist Dr Hugh White would later tell the court that the victim had received several blows to the head. Georgina endured over 30 separate injuries that included repeated stab wounds, fractures to a cheekbone eye socket and jaw, and there were parts of her skull that had been shattered. Ending his opening statement, Michael Bowes QC said... It is the prosecution's case that the person attempting to use Georgina Edmonds' credit card was Matthew Hamlin and that he was the person who murdered Georgina Edmonds. On the second day of the trial, Harry Edmonds described the day he found his mother beaten to death. He arrived home and after unsuccessfully contacting her on the phone, He decided to head down to Georgina's cottage, which was only a short walk away, the property being on the same estate. It all looked so dark, it just seemed to be a foreboding atmosphere. I don't know why it should be like that, but I was conscious of it, he said. When he got inside before switching on the light, he noticed the outline of some legs on the floor. He at first thought she had had an accident, Before realizing Georgina had been murdered, Harry Edmonds told the court that he considered calling his mother earlier that day, but instead focused on his work commitments, a decision he said he regretted. (music) Forensic scientist Sonia Marshall would give expert testimony in which she explained that a mixed profile that included Georgina Edmonds' DNA was found on the rolling pin the prosecution argued had been used to beat her to death. The scientist also testified that in the mixed sample, it might be possible that a further contribution represented Matthew Hamlin, though she could not be 100% certain. The marble section of the rolling pin had been swabbed, and there were similarities to a portion of Hamlin's DNA. However, there are also other profiles on both the handle and spindle that could not be accounted for. They match neither Georgina Edmonds or Matthew Hamlin. A scene of crime examiner Michael Appleby would later testify that no one else could be a better fit than Matthew Hamlin. When crime scene investigators arrived, they noted blood on the rolling pin along with a pair of glasses in one of the dog food bowls. Georgina Edmonds' profile was present amongst what appeared to be a mixed sample found on the rolling pin that included some markers that pointed to Matthew Hamlin. But when the scenes of Crime Examiner was cross-examined, he was forced to admit there was nothing concrete that could forensically link Matthew Hamlin to the scene. The jury of seven women and five men were shown footage of the man captured on CCTV at 10.38pm attempting to withdraw £200 from Georgina Edmonds' bank account. Hiding his face and using his right hand to feed the card into the machine, the man repeatedly failed to enter the correct number to access the account. His defence counsel Tim Mousley QC seized on this fact during the cross-examination of one of the investigators, when other images of the accused showed Matthew Hamlin using his left hand in every other instance. It was revealed through the investigators' testimony, that detectives had tracked down all eight of the people that had reportedly been seen wearing fluorescent jackets on the night of January 11th, 2008, one of which was the Polish man police sought to question. Another witness, Francis Pavey, who spotted a man dressed in a fluorescent jacket on the night of the murder, subsequently testified that she saw the male she thought the police were after outside her home on St. Lawrence Road. Walking with a hunch, the man was seen putting something into a bin on the green only a few hundred metres from the Tesco Express garage. The bin was used for dog waste. However, the witness said that the person she saw did not have a dog. Doddy Edmonds would also address the jury, testifying about her mother's possessions. The witness told the court that a fruit knife and a paring knife looked to have been stolen from the kitchen of Fig Tree Cottage. During her testimony, she tried to make eye contact with Hamlin, who she had not seen in the flesh up until this point. However, the defendant chose not to look back, instead fixing his gaze on his counsel. At the start of December, jurors, counsels for the defence and prosecution, along with Judge Mr Justice David Clark, disembarked from a coach outside the cottage on Kiln Lane.
4: The jury made their way along this towpath which runs past Mrs Edmund's home. It was here that her mobile phone which had been stolen from her cottage, was found discarded in undergrowth a few weeks after her death. The prosecution says it's this route that Matthew Hamlin took after killing her. From Fig Tree Cottage, which is in Brambridge near Eastleigh, the jury went on to other sites key to the prosecution's case. They were taken to the Tesco Express store in Eastleigh's Twyford Road. This is where a man, the prosecution say is Matthew Hamlin, was caught on CCTV trying to withdraw cash using Mrs Edmund's stolen credit card. The jury was then brought to this nearby green where a man of the same description was seen putting something in a dog waste bin on the night of Mrs Edmund's death. The last stop on today's visit was here, the Crescent in Eastleigh, where Mr Hamlin lived at the time. The prosecution says the jury has today traced the steps that Mr Hamlin took after he killed Georgina Edmonds.
2: In further evidence that the prosecution claimed pointed to Hamlin's guilt, cell tower data put his mobile phone in the area at the time of the murder. His mobile phone was detected by a cell tower at 2.18pm near Fig Tree Cottage and again at 3.25 and 3.26pm near a towpath on the River Itchen. The following week the jury would hear the voice of Matthew Hamlin, who still had not spoken at the trial. His voice came from a recording obtained while he was in police custody during July 2010. Speaking to his mother Linda Manning, he told her the investigation against him was a witch hunt and that he believed he was with some friends at a party, a detail he had not disclosed to detectives as his solicitor advised it could turn out to do more harm than good if it were not true. He was heard saying, I haven't done anything mum. You know I could not do it. It's a witch hunt. They are trying to fit me up. He went on to say, I don't know where I was. I was drunk. It was two and a half years ago and I can't remember where I was last week. I've been stuck in a cell for 80 to 90 hours with nothing to do. It's driving me mad. I can't sleep. I have nothing to read. I can't watch TV. I wake up and I'm grilled. They're trying to get me to trip up. My life is ruined, and your life is ruined. I'm sorry, Mum. During the visit with her son, Linda Manning suggested she pay Matthew's friends a visit to make sure he was at a party. One of the friends in question, a woman, Sarah Wrigley, would take the stand and testify that in January of 2008, she did not know Matthew Hamlin. Officers who had been working the case since January 2008 gave testimony and spoke of their frustrations when trying to track down and interview Matthew Hamlin. His name first came to their attention in April 2008, but despite a number of calls and visits to his address, at the time registered to a property on Harvey Road in Eastleigh, just over a mile from the ATM where Georgina Edmund's bank card had been used, no one answered. After speaking to the Department of Work and Pensions, officers discovered he had moved to the Crescent, although again police initially did not receive a response. It was decided they would put their request in writing, and though Hamlin made contact, he missed his first few appointments. It was not until August 28, 2008 when he was first interviewed. During questioning, he seemed like he wanted to help, and told police that he was a self-employed electrician. He did not own either a pair of light-coloured trainers or a fluorescent jacket, and did not know the victim or her relatives. He had only ever used Kiln Lane as a shortcut when travelling, and had not spent a considerable amount of time there. But Matthew Hamlin could not account for his whereabouts on January 11, 2008. He said he often frequented local pubs, the Chamberlain Arms and the Arrow, but said it was just as likely he could have been staying with his girlfriend. After he was arrested in July 2010, he was asked to take part in a reconstruction of a man attempting to withdraw money from the ATM on Twyford Road, a request he declined. Jurors were shown a video recording of Hamlin being interviewed while he was in police custody. He told them that he had never been to Fig Tree Cottage, and there was most certainly an innocent explanation for his DNA being found on the marble rolling pin, though again Hamlin could not remember where he was on the date Georgina Edmonds was killed. He said, I know I didn't murder her because I'd remember something like that, but I can't account for my whereabouts, specific times and dates. Things like that seemed trivial at the time.
3: Have you handled a rolling pin at Fig Tree Cottage? Not to the best of my knowledge. So your answer to the question about are you in the habit of holding rolling pins at someone's cottage? That's a general question. Right, okay. Well, I think it's a fair question to ask when you are under arrest and suspicion of murder. And we are saying that we link
2: you to this murder weapon. the jury heard Detective Constable David Bolton tell Matthew Hamlin on 18 separate occasions that due to the DNA evidence he had been forensically linked to the crime. But when DC Bolton was under cross-examination by Tim Mousley QC, the Defence counsel said, When you say forensically linked, it's misleading. It's maybe forensically linked. A scene of crime examiner testified that only a partial DNA profile was found on the rolling pin which did not conclusively prove it was Hamlin. The entire house was swabbed top to bottom and so far the police could find no trace of him anywhere else. Mousley accused Detective Constable David Bolton of laying a trap for Hamlin trying to get the accused to provide an explanation for his DNA being on the rolling pin that could then be discredited. Bolton denied this and said that the FSS or Forensic Science Service were happy for him to use this wording when questioning the suspect. The court adjourned over the Christmas period and at the start of the new year, Hamlin's defense counsel put forward his argument. Tim Mousley QC disagreed with the accuracy of the prosecution's theory that Matthew Hamlin committed the crime for financial gain due to the nature of the attack. Whoever killed Mrs. Georgina Edmonds committed a violent, brutal offence, he said. There were repeated deliberate wounds to her over a period of time. We are not concerned in this case with a momentary act of violence. It's something considerably more violent, brutal than that. Mousley dismissed the prosecution's claim that Hamlin was so laden with debt he was driven to kill, instead arguing that the act was committed by someone who was looking to shift the blame. The Defence counsel asked jurors if they really thought that someone would commit such a vicious attack for only a few hundred pounds. On multiple occasions, the court had been played the secret recording of Hamlin and his mother in which they discussed his potential whereabouts on the day Georgina Edmonds was murdered. The prosecutor had described the instance in which it was suggested Hamlin's mother visit his friends to confirm his story as manipulative and devious behaviour. Jurors would see Hamlin on CCTV captured during the late afternoon of January 11, 2008, as he entered a Sainsbury supermarket in Eastleigh, just over half a mile south from the Tesco Express garage and three miles south the Fig Tree Cottage on Kiln Lane. Later, when he took the stand, Hamlin recalled why he was in the supermarket. He had been buying food for his girlfriend who was due to be arriving home on January 12 after a stay in Plymouth. During the ninth week of the trial, the defence called three witnesses who described the 33-year-old defendant as a caring person that was not aggressive. These included two of his mother's friends who said that Matthew was protective towards his mum. A quote, friendly chap who had a nice way about him a friend of Hamlin's who he would often go drinking with, described him as honest and genuine. The witness had visited the accused while he was in custody and said that he was, quote, obviously annoyed for being put in prison for something that he hasn't done. While Defence Counsel Tim Mousley QC tried to present his client as an honourable, quiet man who had been caught up in a case of mistaken identity, Hamlin was questioned about a domestic incident in which he struck his girlfriend with an ironing board following a disagreement at the end of 2008. Matthew Hamlin stressed that he only struck his partner on this one occasion while defending himself. He explained that his girlfriend had been confrontational and she had mental health problems, which led to the argument. While admitting he had struck her, He told the jury that the pair reconciled the next day. Prosecutor Michael Bowes QC spoke of Hamlin's past behaviour and said that the defendant had admitted to walking the waterways of Eastleigh when he was in an agitated state, placing him close to the scene and explaining a possible motive. However, Hamlin disputed this, saying he had not walked that towpath in over a decade. It was now just over four years to the day since Georgina Edmonds' death in 2008 and the trial for her murder would soon be coming to an end. In his closing statement at Winchester Crown Court, Tim Mousley QC insisted that the prosecution had in no way proved it was Matthew Hamlin that killed Georgina Edmonds. He stressed that the police had not linked the man at the ATM attempting to withdraw cash from the victim's account to the man who killed Georgina, and they certainly had not proved that that man was Matthew Hamlin. It was also only an assumption that the person responsible was local. He said the DNA evidence did not prove that Hamlin was linked to the crime, as experts could not conclusively say it was him. The idea that Hamlin and his mother had been trying to secretly set up an alibi with his friend was described as fanciful by the defence counsel. And even if it were true, Hamlin would have been setting it up for the evening, not the day when Georgina Redmonds was killed. So how would that help his cause? Mousley addressed the jury and said, It's fitting the evidence to a theory, not building a case against Matthew Hamlin, but working back from an assumption that it was him. After the judge's summing up, the jury left to make their decision. This is the end of episode 6. For more on the investigation and the outcome of the trial, please tune in tomorrow when part 2 of this case will be available. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For further information, please see our show notes or visit our website at theywalkamonguspodcast.com.